Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It was a fateful encounter in a crowded, dusty camp. One that changed their lives forever. My name is Shamima Begum. And where are you from, Shamima? I'm from the UK. Uh, you're one of the Bethnal Green girls, right? Yes, I'm one of the Bethnal Green girls. Yesterday, we heard how the Times war correspondent, Anthony Lloyd, found Shamima Begum in Al Hall, a camp in northern Syria. She was desperate to come home. I just want, I just want forgiveness, really, from the UK. Like everything I've been through, I, I didn't expect I would go through that and, you know, lo- losing my children the way I lost them. I don't want to lose this baby as well. And this is really not a place to raise children, this camp. Not, maybe temporarily, but not permanently. That was Shamima Begum talking to the BBC last year. Within weeks, her third child was dead and buried in an unmarked grave outside the camp. Children are routinely dying in the camps. They're dying from preventable and treatable causes. Malnutrition, dehydration, lung infections. What is life like inside the Syrian camps, filled with former fighters and citizens of the Islamic State? It's a concentration camp in the original definition of concentration camp. Can we leave British citizens and British children in these camps forever? As the camp guards lose control and more and more people manage to escape, would that even be safe? Today, Bring Me Home, Part 2. The Problem of the Camps. It's become a sprawling city of battered tents and flowing burkas, where life spills out onto the squalid, rubbish-filled streets and the threat of violence lurks at every corner. Al Hall was first set up as a refugee camp after the first Gulf War. Now it's home to more than 60,000 people. Almost half of them were detained last year after the fall of Baghouz, the last Islamic State stronghold. It's the camp where the Times foreign correspondent, Anthony Lloyd, 
first met Shamima Begum. Oh my God, Alhol, it's an ugly little town and the camp is a very ugly camp at the edge of an ugly town. It's huge, the camp's huge. The camp dwarfs the town. There's no particular feature there. It's very slight undulation in desert land and it's just abysmal. Now, a year and a half in, the tents are all ropey and ragged and kind of falling to bits. There's women in, you know, looking quite thin as far as you can judge beneath a black cab. You're picking through rubbish, the stench from the latrines. Sanitary conditions are pretty bad. When you're walking around the camp, I mean, do you see guards? Is there a sense of control or is it not like that at all? Ah, put it this way. There was a point early last year when I walked into that camp and I could walk in just with my translator. You go through a gate and then you can walk in and speak to people there. Wow, when I went in this time, I got two armed guards at either shoulder and a vehicle. They've got body armor on, you know, assault rifles up. They're ready for trouble. It's kind of totally imperfect interview conditions. But they're like that because they're worried people are going to try and kill them. All. There are guns in the camp. There are guns. It's pretty out of control. I and mean, some of the women have got silenced pistols. I was there two weeks ago. There were nine murders in our whole last oh, month. Wow. That's an exceptional amount, but you get several each month. They're not even sure how many people have been killed because the camp authorities said to me, sometimes when the wind changes, you can smell the smell of the bodies in the shallow graves too. I mean, it's it's out of control. They don't know exactly how many people they think they got there. They think they've got about 64,000. Just under 10,000 of those are in the annex. These are foreigners. By foreigners, I mean not Syrians, but also not Iraqis. Of those 10,000, about 8,000 are children under 12 years old. And that's a really important detail. Whatever else people think, what kind of future do you want for those children? Do you want them to stay getting radicalized in that dump? 8,000 kids under 12 years old. Can you imagine, in the absence of school, 8,000 kids? There's just gangs of kids everywhere. You know, it's like everybody's there. Africans, Asians, Russians, Europeans, just gangs of feral kids. Then the children will become radicalized. But certainly by leaving them in those conditions, all kettled up together, ultra radicals with those who want to leave the organization, you're creating a sort of a test tube for the radicalization of the next generation of Islamic State. Kettling everyone together doesn't just risk radicalising the children, it makes it much harder for the adults who want to peel away from ISIS too. If you are a woman who was never that much into Islamic State or wants to leave the organisation now, you don't want to say that very publicly in our whole. There are instances where women have tried to hold Sharia courts and certainly incidents where women have been murdered for failing to adhere to Islamic State rules. There are two main camps in northeastern Syria, Al-Hul, where Antony first found Shamima Begum, and the smaller, more secure Al-Raj, where Shamima was later moved. Both 
are run by the Kurds. Alroj is a much smaller camp. It's further into the northeast near the Iraqi border. And the amenities there are much better. The latrines, the sewerage, the health clinics, much better. The security is much better. I mean, there you've got serious mesh fences, top with barbed wire, double road, proper watchtowers, and all the rest of it. So it's better, but also there the rule is no black niqab. Like in any other society, your life depends on how much money you have. Vera Miranova is a Russian-American research fellow at Harvard who has followed the Islamic State story from its start. In Iraq, I was based for five years studying everything ISIS-related, writing my book. And I was also taking part as an embedded researcher in operations against ISIS for the Battle of Mosul from the first day to the last. Through her work, she got to know a number of the Islamic State fighters and their wives. She's in daily contact with some of the Russian-speaking women in the camps and hears all about their living conditions. There are very rich women there who are getting a lot of money from outside. They have good tents that don't leak. They don't cook themselves because they buy cooked food. And they could afford a lot of like toys and bicycles for the kids. So kids are busy, so they don't bother them. They don't even clean their own like clothes and tents because you could always hire a person for very cheap to do so. So basically the whole day they are chatting with friends, are online and having tea with neighbors. Then there are people who do not have transfers of money from home and their life is really bad. So basically they are the ones who have to work to get food on a table. So they do this cleaning, they do cooking, they're extremely busy just to earn enough money to survive. So there's a whole little economy in there. People can work and other people who are being kept in the camp will pay them for it. Absolutely. No, it's it's just a city. There is a waxing salon in Al-Hol. My God. There is a massage salon there. There are two cocktail bars. It's a city. So unlikely. Cocktail bars in an, in an ISIS camp. Uh, yeah, but like not alcohol, right? So it's like juice cocktail. Oh. <laughs> but uh, by the way, there is alcohol also and some people do drink it. But it's, it's a city. So they have their own like life and dynamics and so on. And the guards, they allow people to carry on living more or less as normal just within the confines. And people are allowed to receive money, for example. Yes, people are allowed to receive money. So sometimes they are raid, for example, to confiscate cell phones and so on. But guards, even if they try to control it, to be honest, they don't. They don't know the dynamics inside. They don't speak language of those girls. They just control perimeter. Even when they're in like mass fights, they not always intervene the same minute when it's ongoing. Having money is vital to get by in the camps, but accessing funds can be complicated. So the most usual normal way would be to send to Western Union. But the problem here is sending money to the camp is criminalized in many countries. So if you're in a country that doesn't care about this criminalization, like Eastern Europe, right, just do it. Like five seconds, done. If you're in a country like UK, for example, it's more complicated. So you would basically either use Bitcoin or something more secret than it would be cashed in Turkey and sent again inside the camp. 
And if you don't have family to send you funds? Well, Vera has noticed a whole new economy spring up. One which incentivizes women in the camps to keep showing their loyalty to Islamic State. You could get money from ISIS supporters abroad. It works online, so basically that's where you meet a person abroad. Usually it's uh, European Westerners because they have money. If you can show your loyalty to ISIS, there's money to be made and you're likely to have a much easier life on camp. So you have to show yourself as a very pro-ISIS. So you post pictures with uh, ISIS flag, you write memories about how great it was under ISIS and so on. And then men start talking to you and the next step would be actually flirting. It's very common, at least for Russian-speaking women I know in the camp, to get married over the phone. Sorry, what? So how do you get married over the phone? So, okay. So if you if you need an advice, let's say how ISIS does it. So you open a Facebook page where you do all those things I mentioned, right? You you are pro ISIS. You are showing how sad you are being there and so on. Then they start texting you. You reply flirting. And then you could not just be talking to a man, right? So you could get married by phone, and then they are supporting you by sending you money every month. We also need to look at the demand side, right? Males. For them, inside a community, it's very fancy to marry and support a woman inside that whole camp. They're like using it to show off themselves, because it shows their ISIS credentials. They show their ISIS credentials, how they support poor women and so on. For those who aren't still openly loyal to ISIS, life can be tougher. And at this time of year, particularly, Vera hears a lot of complaints. It's winter now, so tents are leaking, there is a lot of water, that kind of thing, right? And in summer, there is a problem with water. There's just not enough water, it's a desert, right? And also, what is often been forgotten is the issues inside the camp between those women. And that's also like we discuss a lot with them, their internal conflicts. So this is relations between the women themselves. Yes, they are now divided into different subgroups by nationality, by opinion about religion, by opinion about ISIS, and their relations are not that peaceful. Is there a core who is still very pro-ISIS? Are people peeling away? What's the process? I wouldn't say there is a core. It's just different groups. So there are people who don't care about ISIS anymore, don't like ISIS, don't pray, don't wear niqab. They just do not care anymore. That's one group. Then there is another group, which is ISIS supporters. And the third group is guys who are more religiously radical than ISIS. So basically, they also are against ISIS because they consider ISIS not Islamic, but it doesn't make them not like radical, right? And they are very powerful and a little bit dangerous group right now. How are they interacting? Usually they do not interact between themselves. They are trying to avoid each other. But sometimes it's impossible, and then when conflict starts. So, for example, almost all conflicts between them in summer start uh, near the water distribution, right? And there is some conflict about not enough water, let's say. So they get into a fight, 
And then it basically gets to be in a fight about religion, although it had nothing to do with it in the beginning, right? It was about water. And when I'm talking about physical fight, we're talking about metal bars. Oh, wow. With, with people being seriously wounded. Vera talks to the Russian-speaking women daily. And some of them she describes as friends. But, she says, she has no illusions about them. Those girls are not victims. They were not groomed. In many cases, I know personally, women were the driving force for the family to move to ISIS. In many cases, I know personally, women are more radical than men. Vera paints a vivid picture of life in the camps. But for a different view of what's happening there, we also spoke to Yasmin Ahmed, Executive Director of Rights and Security International, which is a human rights organisation. And we have been working on the issue of European women and children who are detained in camps in northeast Syria for about a year now. Yasmin points out that these camps are a legal grey area. First and foremost, I think it's very important for the people who are listening to understand that these are not refugee camps, they are detention camps. The women and the children that are being held there are being held in such a way that they cannot leave and there is no lawful basis for their detention. So they are being arbitrarily and indefinitely detained. And I think very importantly to remember that these women and children have been charged with no crime and there is no prospect of any trial and they have no legal rights to review their detention. Like Guantanamo Bay, those that are being held in detention in northeast Syria have no legal rights, so they are in a legal black hole. They have been charged with no offence. They are subject to no criminal trials and they have no way of challenging their detention. So they are essentially without rights, as similarly to those that were held in Guantanamo Bay. The other thing that we do know is that the conditions in the camps are beyond dire. The UN has described the conditions in the camps as inhumane. The biggest humanitarian concern is the children. As Anthony explained, in the area reserved for foreign nationals, there are 8,000 of them. Children are routinely dying in the camps. They're dying from preventable and treatable causes. Malnutrition, dehydration, lung infections. I just woke up one morning and he was really pale. His lips were blue and he was, like, breathing really hard. That's Shamima Begum telling Anthony about the death of her baby boy last year. He was her third child. The first two had died before she reached the camp. So we just took him to the hospital here. I took him in the morning, early in the morning, and then he died, like, at 12 o'clock at night time. It was like a chest infection. I mean, they said pneumonia, but it was a chest infection. Was there anyone with you when he died? I was just sitting in the room by myself. When I started to see that he wasn't actually breathing, I, like, called the nurse and she brought in the doctor and they started, you know, trying to... Resuscitate him? Yeah, him. How long did they try to resuscitate him for? Five minutes. After which it became apparent he was dead and couldn't be resuscitated, yeah. right? 
Then what happened? They left you there, or they? Yeah, they just left me there with him. I just stayed there with him overnight. There is a severe lack of medical facilities in the camps. And so being able to treat these very routine medical issues becomes somewhat impossible. And also the conditions themselves in these camps are so dire. So, for example, the water in the camps are not clean. There is not enough food for the children to eat and for the women to eat. It's as basic and simple as a situation where children are malnourished. When we hear from these women, all we are hearing is really desperation. It is sheer desperation and saying, we just want to come home. So should we bring them home? We'll consider some of the options in just a moment. But if you want to get to the heart of the story every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times. Join today and get one month free. Search for thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. With thousands of foreign nationals being detained in camps in northern Syria, opinion is divided on what should happen to them. According to Anthony Lloyd, there are two main schools of thought. So one side suggests that amongst those in the camps, principally our whole camp, our Rog camp, and the prisons with the male prisoners in, there will be people, men and women, too damaged and too extreme to ever, ever be returned home to their original societies without posing a threat. Generally, amongst the authorities or government figures who adhere to that opinion, they admit that the camps is not a great long-term solution because it doesn't actually get you anywhere. But it's the best interim solution because you know it prevents these people from ever getting back and being in a position where they could harm us at home. Thereby, they say, Shamima Begum should stay there. So I suppose where I start from is I don't think there are easy solutions. So Mark Rowley is a man who'd know. He's the former head of counterterrorism policing in the UK. His last year in post was punctuated by terror attacks on Westminster Bridge, London Bridge and Borough Market, Finsbury Park Mosque, Parsons Green Station and the Manchester Arena. There are people, aren't there, who say, oh, well, it's obvious, we, we just have to bring them all back here and put them on trial and put them in prison. That's not possible, unfortunately. They ignore the nice bit of detail, which is about, is there enough evidence to put them in prison? And unfortunately, proving what people did out in Syria and Iraq under the ISIS regime is inordinately difficult to do, as you might imagine. There's been work done to try and gather evidence from battlefield, etc. But a large, large number of them, 
there is insufficient evidence to have a decent chance of putting them in prison for a long time. I would challenge the assumption that just because somebody's been interviewed out there by a journalist and says some appropriate things of regret doesn't actually mean that's true. And I don't know on individual cases, of course, but um, terrorists lie. I know that's a glib thing to say, but of course they do. And look at that recent case in London where the Fishmongers Hall case, where I think where you've got a terrorist who's played along with assessments and convinced the many in the UK system that he's been de-radicalised only then to to commit terrorist acts. And there have been sort of several cases around the world like that. So I think we need to be very, very, very sceptical when someone says, I made a mistake and I've now seen the light. If one side of the argument is heavily swayed by the fear of the risks these people would pose if they were brought back to Europe, the other side is just as struck by the dangers of leaving them where they are. Of course, the security of our country and other European countries is of prime importance. But our security interests will not be represented by kettling thousands of women and children together in camps described in a UN report last year as deplorable and inhumane, without any hope of repatriation, without any real effort to separate hardcore, diehard extremists from those who are either now disgusted with Islamic State and genuinely want to return home to live as part of our society. Those camps are places where not only can you not de-radicalise children, but you can't prevent them from becoming radicalised while they're there. My own view is that they should be brought back to either their European country they left or to some other place, which is certainly outside northeast Syria. Richard Barrett is the former director of global counterterrorism operations for MI6. These are the sort of challenges he spent his career worrying about. I think leaving them in northeast Syria is not a a good option at all for them, for their children, nor for either the countries they came from or the countries they may end up in. Because the longer they're there, I think the worse their situation becomes, more unpredictable. Uh, The harder it is to assess the risk they may pose to the rest of society and so on. And so they need to be back into in a more stable environment where their physical, mental and emotional state, I guess, can be assessed and some plan can be put forward to help them integrate into a society where they may put down roots and feel a greater sense of belonging than they did, obviously, before they left for the Islamic State. And it seems to me that by leaving them in the camp, we're, we're sort of hoping that they may somehow disappear. Well, they certainly won't all disappear. And so something has to be done at some point, and the sooner it's done, the better. For some, the camps are a ticking time bomb. The Kurds who run them have made it clear that they don't have the resources or capacity to watch over so many potential terrorists at once. As Anthony explains, there's been a startling number of escapes from the camp in the past year alone. Hundreds of escapes, including British women too. Now, you're lucky if people who have escaped want us somehow to get back to Turkey in order to apply to consulate to get back to Britain. That has happened. You have got British women who were in our hole last year who are now back in London because they escaped, ended up in Turkey and have got home. But 
More likely, if you escape from Al Hol, you end up in Idlib, living alongside another Islamist organization. If you've got kids, those kids, if you're British to begin with, those will technically be British children, will end up getting radicalized outside of our control. So essentially, the argument is between do you want to control a bad situation or do you want to leave a bad situation outside of your control? Both had valid issues. I would argue that of the two, it makes far more sense to repatriate. And let's talk about figures. I'm interested. I mean, tell me, how many do you think British citizens, ballpark figure, are in those camps and prisons? I'm fascinated. What do you think? Gosh, I don't know. Is it 100? According to the most reliable cross-check figures, we're talking about nine British men, 15 British women, between 20 and 30 British kids. Really? We are not talking about the 400, which the Home Office so frequently suggests. We're talking about a minuscule amount of people. It is a relatively small number of people. And for Vera Minerova, that makes it a more pragmatic decision. I support a repatriation prosecution at home for several reasons. First, the home governments have a better capability of watching them and making sure everyone is safe and sound, right? In case of some countries we're talking about, like, four women, you could literally lock them in one apartment. What are we talking about? All options are bad, but this one is, like, better than the rest. You could leave them in a camp. And with Westerners, you know, it's not a big deal kind of either just because of the small numbers. So you could forget about them, which is, you know, of course, not okay from the low point of view. Let's talk security wise, right? They could be locked and they could be more or less monitored that they don't escape. First and foremost, all European governments need to take responsibility for the women and children of their nationality who are being held in the camps. That's Yasmin Ahmed again. She thinks governments have a moral duty to repatriate their citizens. The first step must be that they must repatriate them. European states to date, their policy has been that they say, first of all, repatriation is logistically too difficult and from a security perspective is too difficult. But what we know is that there have already been a number of repatriations that have actually taken place. Which countries have those happened to? So Belgium, France, Germany, the Netherlands and the United Kingdom have all repatriated children. And Belgium and Germany have both repatriated one adult each as well. So certainly the argument that this is not possible is just not true. And in addition to that, what we also know is that European governments not only have the ability to repatriate in these ad hoc circumstances, but they also all had presence on the ground in the camps. So we have documented as part of our research that all European governments have had either diplomatic intelligence or military presence on the ground in the camps. If there is a presence on the ground, what should they be looking for? How do you know if someone is suitable for repatriation? Richard Barrett breaks down the options. I think that there's a categorisation of the women there into those who are very keen to return home and may have a support mechanism back at home in family or other community members who can, can help them resettle. 
And then there's other people who may be very uncertain about going home and what might be in store for them and their children in terms of legal proceedings or discrimination, stigmatization, or even that they don't really have anywhere to live there. And then there'll be a third category of people who don't want to go back at all and would much prefer to stay in the camp or dream that the Islamic State Caliphate might somehow re-emerge and that they could rejoin that. So obviously it's easiest of all to deal with the first category, the people who want to go home, think they made a mistake or anyway have burnt out their desire to live under the Caliphate and are ready to talk to the authorities, talk to the communities, talk to social workers and so on about why they went in the first place, uh, what they did while they were there, and why they stayed so long, because most of these people, of course, stayed to the bitter end and until the fall of Baghouz when they were all shipped off into the Kurdish-run camps. Yasmin Ahmed warns that if these people are left in the camps, it not only makes them more likely to be radicalised, but it also makes it much harder for us to monitor them. It's also certainly the case that some of those may end up finding their way back to Europe potentially, and we're not aware of that. Can you understand why people in Europe are are worried about the prospect of bringing people back? I can absolutely understand that. I myself worked as a legal advisor in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, and as part of my job, I, in fact, advised counterterrorism department mm. and I sat around tables where we were assessing threats and I have seen that and I understand the very real risks that we as the United Kingdom and the government has to take account of and so certainly I don't say with any naivety that these women and children should be brought home. I understand people's hesitation yeah. but I think really from a security perspective, firstly, it is the best approach, not only for our immediate, but more importantly, from our long-term security. Now, obviously, bringing people back is not a no-risk solution, yeah. but it is certainly the solution that allows us to have the most control. And it is certainly the solution that ensures that we comply with our moral and our legal obligations towards those that are in the camps. The Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, sort of agrees, certainly as far as the children are concerned. The government speaks with one voice, and we've made it very clear that where you've got orphan children uh, or children, uh, unaccompanied minors, so without yes. their parents and there's no security threat, of course we will seek to repatriate them to this country. But there are huge challenges in operating on the ground in Syria and elsewhere. Britain has repatriated, I think now it's six orphans from the camps in northeastern Syria, British orphans. That's Anthony Lloyd again. Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, has described those you know, repatriations as the rescue of orphans, which suggests somehow that these children and these women are actually kept in camps and it takes a huge amount of effort or even military effort to somehow rescue them, spring them from the camps. That's not true at all. These aren't rescue operations. If you want someone British from the camps as British Foreign Office, you ask the Kurds to release them and, and they are released. It's slightly different for nationals from say, non-coalition countries, but as far as Britain and America goes, America's got all its nationals repatriated, may I add. Ask the Kurds, give us those women, those children, and those men from the prisons, and that's what they do. And they all go, it's not a rescue operation. And also, the degree of collaboration in security was made very visibly apparent to me when I was in Al Raj 
two weeks ago, and there was a patrol of British special forces there having a meeting with the camp administration. There were five or six guys loitering around outside, speaking with the guards by the gate, while a couple of other guys, I guess an NCO and an officer, went in to speak with the authorities there. It was all very relaxed. They'd clearly done it before. This is not a super dangerous area. None of them were wearing helmets. They had their kind of slightly irregular uniforms with British ammo pouches and and slightly specialist weapons. But this is a very close hand-in-glove security operation. There's a whole lot of collaboration and cooperation going on there. There's no rescue required for any British national there. It's a matter of British authorities saying, oh, please, can we have that person to take them back home? But what happens then? What happens if we do bring them back home? Tomorrow, in part three. When you're in a state of radicalization, your life is consumed with fear. Fear of supernatural beings, fear of God, fear of hell, fear of Satan, fear of dying and being punished. Does de-radicalization work? We hear from a former jihadist. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Times foreign correspondent Anthony Lloyd, Harvard Research Fellow Vera Minerova, the Executive Director of Rights and Security International Yasmin Ahmed, Director of the Global Strategy Network Richard Barrett, and the former Head of Counterterrorism Policing in the UK, Sir Mark Rowley. The producer today was Edward Drummond, the executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Nicola Rawfast. If you can, please do leave us a review. If you want to get in touch about anything you've heard or anything you'd like to hear in the future, then do drop us an email at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.